Hello and welcome to Leadership Luminaries from PeopleSmart. I'm your host, Michael Banks, and my guest today is Pascal Goy, who for the last 10 years has been head of L&D Learning and Development at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN. CERN's work is to help uncover what the universe is made of and how it works. It's also the home of the Large Hadron Collider, the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator. Today, Pascal will be talking with me about the challenge of enrolling and engaging highly technical and academic populations into the so-called soft skill learning journeys that are not their main focus and priority, typically. The challenge of building a learning community that needs everyone's involvement and not just learning and development. And she'll also be talking with me about the challenge of shifting the culture to a more human-centric relational one while still dealing with the science-based reality that has always been the, the emphasis um, at, and the heart of CERN. And just before we start, a little bit about PeopleSmart, the company that produces this show. PeopleSmart provides innovative learning solutions, both virtual and in-person, to organizations in many countries, cultures, and languages, focusing on leadership and people development in the context of digital transformation, change management, culture change, and the increasing need for emotional intelligence. So Pascal Goy is an accomplished professional with 35 years of wide ranging leadership and human resources management experience in international organizations. Before working at CERN, Pascal fulfilled several executive roles in other international organizations, such as the International Trade Center in the UN system and the World Trade Organization. Pascal is a certified executive coach and regularly delivers keynote speeches in international HR conferences. Despite her 25 years of substantial experience uh, internationally, starting at CERN was a major wake-up call. Indeed, with a long history of great discoveries such as uh, the World Wide Web, which is something I wasn't aware of, um, CERN was daunting in many ways and propelled her into a professional venture as complex and thrilling as searching for the mysteries of the universe. Being responsible for shaping multi-year development programs to support the HR vision and develop the professional potential of all, she was bold enough to advocate the concept of a lifelong learning culture at CERN. She leveraged the existing leadership culture to fast track her belief in learning communities through creative approaches. With energy and curiosity, Pascal, to use her own words, collided my learning and development vision with the reality of this organization. So good morning, Pascal. Good morning, Michael. I'm Thank delighted you. to be honest today. And uh, first of all, I'm gonna um, ask you a question. What's it like to work at CERN? I, mean, I don't know if, if I'm the only one, I'm sure I'm not. I'm people, know a little bit about it, but I bet you there's thousands of people out there curious to know what it's like to work at CERN. And, and also, is everyone working underground? Yeah, very nice. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that's the right way to start. Well, the first thing I, I feel like saying is that CERN is an incredible example of successful and inclusive uh, international collaboration and that's really important to 
to have that word collaboration because I'm going to kind of repeat it and it will probably lead me very nicely towards the concept of, of learning communities. We are all pursuing a common goals. It is linked to particle physics. And CERN is also extraordinary, not only because it's the world's leading uh, laboratory for particle physics, but probably because it was born from a dream, from the dream of a group of visionary scientists and diplomats to use science to unite Europe after the Second World War. And, and that birth is giving to CERN a different uh, a stimulation, a different soul. And that's probably why I would say to reply maybe more directly to your uh, question that when somebody is working at CERN, that person gets swamped with, uh, in CERN. And we are, we get, um, how to say, we get to love CERN, although we are not necessarily physicists and engineers and technicians. And uh, to also reply to your question, uh, we do have people working on ground and underground, because as you've said it in your introduction, we have this uh, uh, immense tunnel, this collider that is uh, running 100 meters under the ground. And that is our pride and also the only one in the world. So for all these reasons, CERNs is exceptional and very special. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning that that uh, tunnel is 27 kilometers long. Indeed. Is that, Indeed. Isn't that yes. I mean, yeah. how long did it take to, 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 to build? Oh, it took over, I should have probably checked, I would say 15 years. Wow. Uh, but I would need to check that. I am not so sure. But it's been, I mean, the beauty, as I said, CERN is a collaboration. So not everything has been built and constructed in Geneva. Uh, I mean, parts of these colliders, uh, uh, collider have come from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And this is the beauty because you have to imagine that uh, this part couldn't come by plane. They have to come by trucks. And the roads here in the area are not that big because we, we live close to the mountain. So it was a whole expedition to get these incredible big parts of the collider arriving in Geneva and having to be assembled to, to the millimeter when they had to drop them with cranes, you know, they had wow. to really fall into place. And we are talking 100 meters under the ground. So, for all of this reason, uh, the story of this collider, the story of Sony is really special. Wow, yeah, I was just, as you're talking, I'm just imagining the absolute, uh, the, the phenomenal um, logistics that went into that. I mean, you're talking mm -hmm. about massive pieces of equipment and tiny fractions yes. that need to be taken into account and underneath the ground as well. I mean, I can only imagine uh, <laughs> I bet there was a few motorists in the in the roads around the region who were inconvenient when one of those pieces was being trucked along the, the, the road. Is that right? I bet. Yes, I can imagine. I wasn't there in those days, but yes, yes, I've seen lots of different movies because, of course, we have taken lots of pictures for, I mean, lots of uh, um, films, and that tells you an incredible story. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. 
So um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the when you when we talk about working underground, I would imagine there are some people who are spending most of their time underground. Um, is that right? Yes, and uh, for some professions, indeed, uh, they they always work underground. They come back to the surface of of course every day, but uh, their work is really about maintaining uh, the collider, about maintaining the installations, the technological installations. Yeah. The sun is first, uh, not only a tunnel, but I mean this is a, a technical. Um, technical, I would just say, big work, if you want. So we do, we're probably really known for our physicists, but the, the majority of our populations are technicians and engineers, physicists yeah. who transform themselves into engineers. Yeah, it's interesting because it reminded me when I, uh, when I was thinking about this of um, a, a tool um, that was invented in the late 50s by an American called Will Schutz. Um, and he was asked by the US Navy to design uh, an instrument. You may, may know it, the Fire OB. Um, and well, he, he was asked to design this tool to help uh, teams, submarine teams, who were under the water for weeks on end and had to successfully work together without killing each other, you know, because they were in this confined space underground, essentially under the water. And so, and that was an instrument that he designed that uh, I've used a lot with teams and, and individuals, which, which measures the degrees of um, interpersonal needs, you know, because when you are working uh, in intense situation, in, in relative isolation, you can imagine that you really need to understand each other as a team and your colleagues and collaboration. So you have to know, you know, does someone like to be friendly or work on their own and not sort of be very expressive? Does someone like to be uh, included or not? Yes. Some people don't, you know, so it was fascinating. So I thought about this in relation to, uh, into relation to your workforce mm -hmm. and what kind of, uh, needs they have in terms of collabor collaboration, but we can come to that later. But the next question I'd like to ask you, Pascal, how would you describe the culture? What are the chief characteristics of the culture of CERN? I think this is the, the big question, and this is, for me, uh, working at CERN, probably the most important question before, because before doing anything, the most important thing for me was to really understand this organizational culture. So we do have values. Uh, we do have a specific climate. We have lots of uh, uh, unsaid rules. Uh, very often, depending on where you're going at soon, because let's remember that soon is a big place. And it's, not all, it's one site in Geneva and France. But I mean, you do have different points with the detectors. Uh, around these 27 kilometers, which we talked to, and the smell of these different places is, is different mm -hmm. wherever you go from a kilometer to the next. Mm -hmm. So having to find out those rituals, those gut feelings that you may have, depending on where you are, so constitute the organizational culture. Mm -hmm. And if you add that, you have, I would say, the 
the second layer, the one that you can probably see more visibly, which is the scientific curiosity that is uh, in each of the people who are working there. You do have young people, you do have uh, senior people all working together and they are moving in the same direction. It's also because the mission that we are really trying to achieve is about improving lives around the globe. As you said, we are trying, we are working in fundamental physics and particle physics, but we are also uh, doing that because we want to understand and today we are trying to have our uh, discoveries and research works being implemented in industry because we want the society to have the benefit of the work we are doing. And also because uh, we want to engage more people in science and technology and innovation. So if I think of that constituting part of the organizational cultures, the students that nobody knows about, but that exists, this diversity of people, the diversity of ideas, of mindsets, etc. We also have to add again to this layer the diversity of professions, the diversity of roles, and the generations. As I said, we have young people working with senior people. We have technicians, highly skilled technicians, working with physicists and engineers. We also have administrative uh, people because, of course, you have the world of the scientific community, but you also have the administrative community. And we all know that the rules are not the same for one or the other, because of course, what guides the um, administrative people is not the same as what guides the uh, scientific collaboration. For instance, when you are with a scientist, uh, what talks to them is flat hierarchy, expertise, experiments, achievements, autonomy, flexibility, curiosity, open-mindedness. These guys are moved by an intrinsic will to really work on science. And these guys have to, of course, work with a different world, the, the world of, of these administrators. So these are really working, I would say, in the CERN, at CERN itself, where you have completely different mechanisms and processes. Then we have a hierarchy, we have processes, we have organization, we have uh, also behaviors that differ from that is those that are required by scientists. We want clarity, we have objectives. When you're a scientist, I mean, your objective is not the same as when you're an HR one. And we also play between these intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivators. So imagine all of these different people having to work in the same place. And the organizational culture at CERN is a mixture, is a soup, if I may yeah, yeah. <laughs> say, of, of all of this. And of course, uh, the idea is to, I mean, the culture, and maybe I should say the culture with an S, because as I said, depending on where you're working, whether you are in the accelerator sector, or if you're in the uh, research sector, or the uh, human resources and financial sector, you'll have people who have different minds and all of these people have to work together because again, as I said, we are working for, the, for common goals. 
Right. And that is what explains all of this or what makes this organization culture very complex. Right. And it's interesting, you also mentioned the word um, there, tell me if I'm wrong, but curiosity. Yes. And so I have, my question is, um, is going to, I'm also jumping the gun here because I want to ask the question. The, there's the curiosity of those who are involved in research and science and so on. And I wonder for those, for that population, which is obviously a large population, yeah. all those, you've got thousands of scientists, I believe. Um, so for that population, to what degree are they curious about the, uh, the evolution or development of, of human beings uh, in terms of their personal development and, and, and so on? I mean, that's, that's an area of potential curiosity you know, like asking yourself the question, am I as evolved as I'd like to be? Am I fulfilled, my potential fulfilled? Um, which is, requires a certain amount of self-reflection and uh, looking at yourself and then also looking at yourself relative to other people uh, as well. Like, am I uh, developing well as a person who can collaborate and work in teams to optimize the work that we're doing towards the goal that you know the common goal we have so that's a that's a question that i mean i see you smiling there <laughs> i think you can probably get the drift of where i'm going with that um so actually <laughs> uh two questions at once so i'm going to give you two as based on what i just said so what aspects of the culture are would you say are unhealthy or ideally should be addressed and uh, would you say second part of that, which there may be, which may sort of connect, is there a need for scientists at CERN to develop their people skills? Okay, uh, I can I have a straight answer to the second question, and it's a yes. And I'm going to use your first question maybe to get to the yes. Yeah. So I mean, as I've described the complexity and the level of intelligence in a way of our people is, is, of course, focusing on science. However, we have realized, and they do realize in their daily life, that every time there's an issue, it's not to do with a detector or with a proton, it's to do with people. And that's how you can, uh, you can start getting them interested. And I would say, because they are very smart people, uh, we need to be a little bit strategic. And what does it mean? Probably finding the right hook for them to look at something different than just pure science. Mm. I'm really about to make the analogy with the protons in the colliders. You know, we send beams of protons in the collider in order, in order to get an impact, in order to get data. And, and uh, in LND, what we have tried to do was to excite our people so that they would be more open and more curious about learning and development. And how we did that, um, well, first there's not one route and there's not one solution, there's plenty. And that is the beauty of, of uh, science is that uh, uh, okay, you, you want to go somewhere, you know the, the direction, you don't necessarily know 
how you're going to go, but because you are curious, you're going to find different ways. And uh, one of the ideas that I strongly uh, believe in is that uh, we cannot, as a child, just go to the people and, and tell them what they should do. That's because uh, uh, if this may be right in the last century, uh, that has gone now. Uh, now you need to really partner with people. You need to make them interested. And I was talking about hook because it's really that. Once these people get hooked on something, they really see why they should they should go in a direction. They'll follow you. They are the best students you one yes. can ever see. And yes. that is the beauty because they, they need the depth, but they are really observing. They, are, they want to do better. They love learning. Learning is part of their DNA. Yeah. It's, uh, and we have to play with that. So if we are a little bit uh, thoughtful and if we understand that uh, uh, getting them interested, playing with their curiosity is uh, uh, a way to get them, then that's going to work. And changing the way we probably engage with them was, was one of the um, area that I decided uh, to, to follow. Um, you know, instead of organizing meetings or trainings as we do in very traditional ways, we develop different um, initiatives around being more interactive, having forum so that uh, the Pedagogy, the traditional, the conservative, the uh, usual pedagogy teacher learner modality would be transformed into a, a core designing, core par uh, learning partnerships. And if you do that, if you go to them and you just tell them, look, here we really would like to work on, on, on something because we have seen and you have come to us and you had such a such issue. And as I said, the issues are very often related to the people skills, because this is where they are not so, so good in a way. Um, they will be so happy to partner, to, to be with you and engaging them, hooking them, exciting them around that, the fact that they will get something out of it. Uh, is what I have used for, for the last 10 years. And I must admit that I've had very, very good results because that did introduce a new dynamic. Well, that's and, it's fascinating. So, so tell me, is it, do you sort of, oh, I've got so many questions. Um, the, is there an, do you actually say to them, we need, you to be interested in developing yourself, your people skills, because, and then do you tell them that the reasons for it, is that enough? I mean, do they, how, how does it work? I mean, and, and to you also, I mean, I'm assuming there is a need for the people skills and can you, can you sort of drill down a bit into yeah. that? So first I would not go to them and say that they need to get better at people's <laughs> skills. If I do that, they will go say, hey, Pascal, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no, no, the idea was more to listen to them, to their stories, have them tell, tell us their stories. Uh, what's their daily life? What are their daily issues? 
and built some programs around these, but based on their on data. We got data from them. It always starts with data. You just can't go and say you'd like them to learn something. No. Well, that's we brilliant. Start. Sorry to yeah. interrupt, but that, that is so good that you're doing that because what you're doing essentially, that's a transferable principle to any organization. What is their language? Their language is data, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so therefore, you speak to them in their, in their language in order to build yeah. rapport and get them to listen in the first place, right? Exactly. And that's it. And by listening to them, they feel interested because, I mean, these people are moved if you listen to them. And I think also because HR is first to listen to people. It's about listening, about observing. So when they come with these stories, the first thing that I used to do was, okay, let's now work on your story. Uh, what, what are the issues? How did you feel? What did you observe? What would you like to, to have seen that you, ha you have not seen? How should it have happened? And with all of these questions, they start getting in it. And then afterwards you come and you say, look, how about maybe uh, having... Um, a meeting or having a workshop around this so that we can work on these topics. And because I think with COVID in addition, lots of things have become even more acute in a way, more precise, more because these people have, I mean, we have all suffered from isolation. So if you go to them, they have lots of stories to tell you. And you can then work on these stories because they've lived these stories. So they understand they have something to, to say about it. And then you start analyzing them with them. And you know, they are good at analysis. And let's not forget that yeah. <laughs> they are the best. And with them, you start digging the main themes, the concepts, the models. And then you can start, you, you can build a workshop, you can build a forum, you can build a topic and have them come and discuss about this topic, make it very interactive. Mm. And that's how I would say uh, we came to themes like resilience, like emotional intelligence, like people skill, because yeah. this is where they need, they need support, they need help. You know, this is not written in the books or it is written in the books, but I mean, they, they have gone through these issues and they want to understand better because they all know, always need to understand the why. Yeah, yeah. And then you come with the how, you see? Yeah. That's, uh, that's really the, um, the beauty of, of our story. Anyway. I love what you're saying, I really do. I mean, you, you are, as they say, meeting them where they are. Yeah. It's, it goes back to the old thing about from 20, 30, 40 years ago, when you when companies would uh, design or produce something uh, and then they'd go out and try and sell it. Yeah. And a lot of the time people didn't want it because they didn't ask them what they wanted in the first place. They didn't know, yeah. they didn't ask the customers, what do you want? They just went ahead and built something. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so... Uh, so that's one of the great things that I hear that you've been doing. Um, and also it's easier then for, uh, for them to take ownership, isn't it? Because it's their story, their issues, and um, you've involved them. And then I love it. You're not sort of creating a program and saying, here it is. You've got to take this course because it'll do you good <laughs> or because we, we need as an organization for you to do this. 
it is because you're creating a more customized, uh, as you said, like a session, a workshop, or a discussion. Yeah, whatever. Which which is which is targeted exactly to what their interests are, and stimulating their learning, like you were saying. Um, that's absolutely amazing. Thank you for that. That's uh, very inspiring. Um, what um, another question I got is: you talked about the different generations. Um, do you think that younger, the younger generation of scientists coming in to CERN are more open to self-development and the need for people skills and EI, emotional intelligence, than the older generation? Uh, my straight answer from uh, as an LND is yes. Because I think the young generation is far more social in a way um, than we are. But they are social, I would say, maybe in a different way than what we used to be. Uh, in fact, I believe that uh, the generation gap doesn't matter. And we do have uh, lots of uh, different I mean, generations working together, and that works perfect. I think the young generation is more calling for learning and a good leadership. That's what they need. Uh -huh. If they have that, they will follow you. They, they want fairness, they want diversity and inclusion. The, the paradigm has changed a little bit. Uh, we probably were in the, in the competition before with young generation, we are more in the cooperation. The authority is gone, now it's really I want to be recognized. I want to be rewarded. I want a good relationship. I want to learn. And, and they have maybe stronger values or different values than ours. Stronger is probably not the right word. So for these different reasons, I would say the young generation is pushing us towards uh, uh, an evolution of this organization that is in, a, in, in because it, it's a big, big organization has obviously a, a certain, um, I would say, weight that yep. maybe you would find in startups. Uh, and we, so it needs to evolve and it will evolve and the young generations will help them, help us in, in, this, in this movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the young generation is clearly far more, I would say, close uh, or understand understand better the uh, the emotions and the people skills. I think they have that more naturally. Uh, they don't have the barriers that maybe we had uh, uh, before. They they come and are very very open. That's that's what, that's actually good news, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> beautiful news. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just very briefly. Um, would you uh, would you uh, tell me about the difference in values? Um, I mean, you, you said they have different values. Could you just briefly give me an example of one or two of those values? Well, I would say uh, the first one that comes to my mind, and that's probably also uh, guided by my own kids. Mm. They they need to have a more balanced life. They are looking for pleasure. They want, they want to have fun. Mm. Uh, they want to be listened to. So their values will be, for me, uh, far more around themselves than maybe 
we had, they are less dedicated to the employer than maybe we were, mm. because uh, they believe that it is first their pleasure, their life, their work-life balance that is important. Um, today, when you, you recruit them, sometimes we are surprised with the questions that they dare ask you, and that are, at the end of the day, very valuable because uh, they are far less submissive, you would say, than we were. They question, they challenge you. And it's not because you are the CEO, the DG or whatever, that they will not ask you the question. We do have a certain, uh, an onboarding uh, process. And during that onboarding process, we welcome every month about 100 people, 150 different types of uh, contracts. And at the end of that day, we have normally the DGs or the director general who comes and answers, answers questions, all types of questions, because in this 100 or 150 people you, we have at the beginning of each month, you have people who, are, who will work in administration or in physics or in engineering. Uh, so you have all types of questions and you would be surprised to hear some of the questions that me, when I was hired a few years ago, I would have never dared ask. So these guys, these young people are pushing us, they are opening our eyes, and they are really opening us to something different. And they welcome the difference. They welcome the complementarity. They want diversity. Uh, and all of that is part of them. And that's what we see here in such a big place with so many people. Thank you. Um, I've got a, a sudden loud dog noise behind me. So I'm going to, uh, if you just bear with me one second, I'm going to see if I can fix that. So ho hold on one second. It's not normally as loud as it's someone that's at the door. So. Okay. Um, sorry, everyone, for that interruption. I rarely have such a problem, but both dogs were going at the same time, and I think it was someone at the front door. Um, I call our older dog the chief security officer. Um, <laughs> it, it's, he's, he's a small dog, but he's, he's a good guard dog. So if anyone came in the middle of the night, then um, I think we'd, we'd know that they were here trying to get into the house. So anyway, um, back to what we were talking about. So um, I, I've got this uh, couple more questions and uh, you, you actually provided this question for me. And I think uh, Pascal, that it's, it's a great one. Um, before we do that, before I ask you that, I'm gonna just remind the audience that um, this is uh, Leadership Luminaries, the podcast series from People Smart. I'm Michael Banks and I'm talking today with Pascal Goy. Um, who works at CERN um, and is, uh, has spent the last 10 years leading uh, the learning and development area of the company, the organization. And um, it's been fascinating, to be honest, to, be, to hear about your world there. Um, so why should you, this is the question that you asked me and suggested that I, I uh, I ask you, why should learning communities collide like particle physics? 
Um, I guess I wanted to play on words. Um, CERN is an, an incredible collaboration and I've said it. So when you, you speak about collaboration, clearly the word community comes naturally. We do have a scientific community. We do have an administrative community. Um, so why not a learning community? I also mentioned that because we are in the world of scientists, um, um, data impact is a words that resonate with them. And colliding, because clearly we have the largest collider in the world. So I thought, how can I put all these words together and make it and give them a meaning uh, that will go uh, with our podcast? And why should learning communities collide like particle physics? Because I believe that it's with encounters, with meetings, with contacts that uh, we learn best. So colliding like particle physics, what do we do in the collider? We collide protons, we collide uh, all types of uh, particles and we get data, we get an impact, we create something, we create in a way the music, we create emotions. And I think colliding all of these communities uh, can be uh, an analogy to learning communities. If you have scientists talking to administrators or to technicians or engineers, you really get something, whatever it is, you don't know what it is, but should we know what learning is all about? Isn't it the beauty of having a kind of uh, no man's land where we discover particles of knowledge, particle of interest, particle of emotions, where we get uh, colors, where we get all of that. And by putting these words together, it's also because uh, we want to, to move, to have this organization evolving, this culture of the organization to evolve in order to be able to meet what we call the, we say all the time, the VUCA world. I mean, if we want to be ready for the next age, we clearly need to be ready to discover something different. We want to um, collide people's needs with learnings. We want to create an impact because that is also to be reported at work. That will be also an impact at work. If people become better, in emotional intelligence, in resilience, in managing self, in leading self, they will perform better at work. There, there's a kind of red thread that nobody loses. We want to encourage collective learning because we know by definition, because we're in collaboration, that we learn with others. That is already part of the DNA. So I think that my idea when I was in LND was to replicate the model that already works and not only have it at the level of science, but also trans transport it to a level of more personal social skills, people skills. We know it works in science and uh, people skills with neuroscience also is starting to have his place there. And the idea I had was to work on that, replicate that model, and have these different populations talk to each other and understand each other. 
and learn because you do learn every time you show a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of observation, a little bit of listening. And these people are really good in doing that because that is, they are not necessarily extrovert people all the time. On the contrary, the first thing they start doing is watch. They first watch and then, you know, they analyze, they compute, as I say. And then you, you see the expression of, of all of this. So I would say that uh, if we want to evolve, if we want to create a different organization, be able to meet the needs of, of the future, have new mindsets, uh, we need to collide all of these communities, like we do collide particle physics, in order to create that sphere of, of learning, which I love calling a learning community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I thank you for that. Um, I really like the way that you um, are basically describing a, 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 an holistic view of learning, um, the connectivity of the science with the humanity. Um, and that's so crucial. And interesting, you use the word curiosity again. Uh, that is so crucial because in being curious in a learning community, you um, allow for discovery, don't you? You allow for new things to emerge. You set the pace, yes, absolutely. You set and, the scene for that. And, and certainly, you know, in our world today where so often people are divided by strong opinions. Mm -hmm. um, they actually lack curiosity to find mm -hmm. out what's behind those opinions they don't agree with. Yeah. yeah, They lack the curiosity to find out who are the people behind those that they don't agree with. And if we had more curiosity in that good sense, I think the world would be a lot better. And what it seems to me that, uh, Pascal, you're doing at CERN is you're, you're exploring how to best utilize that natural curiosity that all those wonderful scientists have, how to transfer that and utilize the curiosity, that urge to be curious, to discover, um, and use it in the sense of people working together. And so that's, uh, I would say, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing that you're doing. And um, I could only say, let's, uh, let's hope it continues and develops further. Yes, yes, very much so. Again, uh, you know, reflecting upon the, the few words you've just mentioned, I'm just also reminding what I've said at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, starting from the laboratory of particle physics and and now talking about bringing the heart and the humanity in the workplace. You know, we've done all of that in, in this last uh, hour. And, and I find that uh, uh, incredibly rich and stimulating, which is exactly what this place is, is about. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to thank you so much, Pascal. It's been fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to say finally um, before we wrap up? I would like to thank you for thinking of uh, having Sun in your podcast. I think uh, uh, we are a very special uh, uh, place and I think I've been very privileged to speak about it and answer your questions and give my opinion on a few things. So big thank you to you, Michael, and uh, to people smart. Okay, so um, 
My apologies to the audience, to our listeners. Uh, another dog interruption. There was a delivery at the front door, some parcel. And uh, you know how it goes. I'm sure most people out there listening to this podcast episode can relate in some way or another to domestic intrusions of noise. Um, so anyway, Pascal, I'd just like to say, wrap this up very quickly now and say again, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Uh, thank you for taking us into the world of CERN. Um, and uh, I think there's so many lessons that you did, described and so many opportunities that can translate to organizations in general, not just uh, particular to CERN. So um, again, thank you very much. And uh, anything else? Well, as I uh, thank you very much, Michael, for inviting CERN to the table of People Smarts Podcasts. I think it's a privilege for me to represent CERN today, and uh, I really thank you for, for that. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.